Welcome to today's Truth Factor discussion. We are currently in our study of Romans, and last week we completed chapter 7, and this morning we're going to be looking at chapter 8. You know, what's very interesting is when you study through Romans, you really need to take chapter 6, 7, and 8 together. Because if not, there's a conclusion drawn from looking at chapter 7 by itself that is not proper until you consider and factor in what is taught in chapter 6 and chapter 8. I'll give you a quick example here. You know, Paul talks about in chapter 23 of Romans 7, and I'll bring that up on the screen here real quick, and let me get rid of that there. He says, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So with the, so with the mind, I myself serve the law of God with the flesh, the law of sin. So Paul leaves off, if we were to stop it there, that despite his salvation, he's still continuously and always and forever engaging in sin, uh, as he says there, but with the, the flesh, the law of sin. But then when we get to chapter 8, as it was not divided when Paul wrote this, he goes on to say, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And therein lies the key that chapter 8 is going to build upon. We are walking according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. That's how we overcome what Paul was talking about in chapter 7. And that's what we don't have if we were to follow only the Mosaic law but what we do have by following the law of Christ. And so that's what we'll be considering today. Paul, if you would take a couple of minutes and explain to everyone how they can participate in today's study. Absolutely, John. You know, I love coming together and studying with the gentlemen who are part of this panel and that we can open up God's Word and that we can study together. But we also love to have your input and know that you're watching out there. And so you might look at any of the social media that we are on, like YouTube or Facebook or Twitter, and look for Truth Factor Live. If you go to YouTube in particular and go to Truth Factor Live, uh, you'll be able to find that, uh, ways to interact with us. We'd love for, on any of those social media, for you maybe just to send us a little note uh, today on that. Just make a comment uh, of where you are. and We'd love to know uh, that you're out there watching today. If you'd like to interact with us as far as through email, uh, we usually get that quickly enough that we could introduce that into our study as well. And you can send that uh, to questions, that's plural, questions at truthfactorlive.com or send it to any one of us like Paul, Mike, uh, John, Tom, Brian at truthfactorlive.com. And we'll be happy to respond to you. So uh, if you want to hit us all, questions at truthfactorlive.com live.com or our first name at truthfactorlive.com. If you're looking on social media, we also would really appreciate you subscribing and clicking on the notification bell. That way you know when we are live. There may be some occasions in the future when it's not always at this time on Wednesdays that we go live, but we may have some special broadcasts and we'd look forward to interacting with you on those. And it'll tell you that Truth Factor is online. Thanks so much. Thank you, Paul. Um... I, I did a little adjustment last week to um, our side-by-side. -side. So, when, so when someone hosts the study, other than myself, I can actually have a picture of them talking with one of the other fellows talking. That's why it says, I'm Paul Adams right now. But but what He's I wanted to point poster. out, the, 
Uh-huh. <laughs> he's an imposter. There's only, yeah. I would say there's only one, but there's actually a whole lot of them out there. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, on the personal email addresses, it's still truthfactor.com. Oh, my, my apologies. That's right. I just want kind of to illustrate that real quick. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's go ahead and jump into our study for today. <clears throat> As I mentioned at the start, we are in Romans chapter 8. And we're not going to try to make it through the whole of chapter 8 today. We kind of talked about this a couple of weeks ago and realized that that's a little bit too much to try to squeeze into one session. And there's a good bit of information there that we want to talk about. But let's go ahead and bring up the chat room question for this morning. Mike, do we have that one ready for the first section? Brian, do we... The guys are all muted. I can read it to you, John, but I don't have any way to do the technology part of it. Okay, that is okay. It will bring it up shortly, and I know why it's not ready yet. I'm doing things backwards today. Mike, since I have you on screen now, let's go ahead, and I'm going to have you to read for us. We need to read the first section of Romans 8, verses 1 through 11. We'll go ahead and get that going. Then we'll introduce the chat room question. I kind of got it out of, um, out of order today. So if you would, Mr. Mike. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Are you still there? I think he's frozen. All right. Well, then, Paul, if you would read it for us, and we'll come back to Mike um, for a later reading. Sure. Uh, Romans 8, 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free, excuse me, has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity with God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. For you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your moral bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. All right. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate that. <clears throat> All right. There are a couple of things we want to look at here in this section, but before we do that, we're going to go ahead and bring the chat room question up for you to see. And here's what we're considering today with this first section for the folks at home. Considering verses five through eight, how would you explain verse eight when it says, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
Okay, and and I'm I'm quite certain that our conversation will probably overlap this question somewhat. But you know, considering verses five through eight, how would you explain the statement? So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. <clears throat> All right, let's see. <clears throat> so Paul, I'm gonna bring you up since we had you to read, and we'll kind of talk about a couple of things, and we'll we'll go around the the group here. In this first section here, we see the concept or the idea that we are to be setting our minds upon the things of the Spirit. Okay. Now, this isn't really part of the, the question here, but of course, the Spirit here we're talking about is the Holy Spirit, right? Yes, sometimes referred, so. Yeah. Sometimes referred to as the Spirit of the Lord. The Holy Spirit of God. Yeah, yes. The Holy Spirit of God. Even the Spirit of Christ, I think, would be the Holy Spirit as well. You know, depending on the context, yeah, I would think so. So, in in the discussion there of what we read well ago in the first, um, especially in verse two there, and let me bring verse two back up on the screen there again. <clears throat> Notice there again, he says, "For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death." Paul, do you see a connection there with Paul's letter in Romans in Ephesians two? The first five verses there. Yeah, I was looking at that. He starts off, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. So uh, when uh, we obey the gospel, and, and here in the way in which Paul says that the Spirit of God is in us, the, the Spirit dwells in us, that uh, we no longer walk in those things. I think it's very similar, uh, some of the thinking here in Romans. I see a lot of comparison between Romans and Galatians. But you know, in Galatians, he talks about how we need to be uh, walking in the spirit and then he talks about how the works of the flesh are, are certain things certain things that we must avoid we must get out of our lives but the fruit of the spirit is something else uh, it talks about a change that takes place uh, and so I, I think that's uh, a very important factor in that and he, in ephesians 2 he just basically lays out there uh, that we were we were dead now we're alive uh, we were in sin now we are uh, in christ and the big change that takes place when we obey that gospel. Uh, and so I, I believe uh, that we would look at the way in which uh, Christ, or excuse me, the way in which the Spirit dwells in us is just like Christ dwelling in us. Paul says in Galatians, in relation to that, before he, in the early part of the book, before he lays out the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And a little later on, he talks about, uh, in, even in our reading in uh, Romans, he talks about how uh, the one who raised Jesus from the dead, that he lives in us. And so I believe, I believe in, in, as it says here, that the Spirit dwells in us. I believe that Christ dwells in us. I believe the Father dwells in us. And it's, uh, I can't give you every answer to that, but it's very closely connected to the way in which we live. When we make choices that are uh, in harmony, are in fellowship with Christ with his spirit or with the Holy Spirit and with the Father when we make those choices to live in that way then we're we have that benefit of being uh, in Christ and he in us it it is a very interesting concept <clears throat> what you're talking about there um, for instance if we were to ask the question and and please take this with kind of a tongue-in-cheek everybody if we were to ask the question is the idea of being born again, you think about John 3, made alive, um, in Ephesians 2, and then what we're looking at here 
um, has made me free from the law of sin and death. Are we talking about it from a figurative standpoint that represents a change of mind and a change of behavior? Or are we talking about something very, very literal, okay, that somehow or another our spirit literally was dead and then was literally made alive? Um, I, I think ultimately your explanation was, was a very good explanation there with that one. Because it's all about the way we, the change of our mind, the concept of being born again, being regenerated. It is a complete change of mind that must take place. Um, and it is, is, and that mind must then walk in step and abide within God. And God must abide within us. And that can only be manifested through the life that we live and so forth. And, yeah, John, I, I, I think I agree with that. And uh, I don't know that I can answer every question about this. I think there's parts of it that I don't, uh, maybe I don't fully grasp or, or is it possible, impossible for us to grasp. Yeah. But uh, some would take a view of this, that it's a uh, better felt than told experience, uh, the spirit being in us. And and uh, I just don't know that that's, uh, that's in harmony with, with the, the other things that I see. Uh, brethren, uh, sometimes, as you say, take a very literal view of this. I don't think I'm going to uh, argue with them because I think there's a, a large part of this that we just maybe uh, yeah. it's beyond our pay grade, so to speak. Uh, but I think I can point to some things and show that when Christ is in us, uh, our life is different. When the Father is living in us, our life is different because we make different choices. Uh, when the Holy Spirit is within us, we're making choices according to what that spirit message has revealed to us. Yeah. And so we're in harmony. And John, earlier uh, in our personal conversation, used the word fellowship. I think that's right, that we are in fellowship with God when we live according to the truth. Yeah. And I think that's one of the, the simplest ways of explaining what we're looking at in this text here. Um, any other guys have a, a comment on this, on this uh, using Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 in correlation to verse 2? Um, if not, we'll move on to kind of the next yeah. verse four. Go ahead, Tom. Yeah. You know, I, I was just going to make, you know, in this discussion about the spirit, I, 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 I too, you know, it, it's too clearly taught that he does dwell in us to, to deny it. Uh, the question is obviously how, and, and the, the word that I like to use in dealing with it is the word influence. He has an influence in our life in one way or another. And, and I know that that word itself is not, uh, uh, fully explanatory from that standpoint, because, because, you know, we sometimes hear he dwells in us through the word. Well, I think that's a yes and no statement too. I don't think the Holy Spirit is the word. So, so, but he uses the word and, and I don't think you can separate them when we talk about this. So I just like the idea of influence and in some way he influences us. Okay. I think that's a good a good statement. I won't push that one any further. Um, <laughs> I, I, I like the idea behind that. Um, okay. And any other thoughts, Mike so my, or Brian? My perspectives on this passage are a little different. Um, oh, and I'm still coming in bad, guys. Can You're you fine. We me? can hear your voice. That's what matters. Okay. Mind. Well, that's what's the most beautiful thing about me. Um, so I always look at verse 2 as, as more of a contrast between the spiritual law of Christ and the carnal law of Moses. Yes. Uh, in other words, mm -hmm. when I see this passage, what I'm thinking about is the concept of how the spiritual law of Christ has freed me from the burden that was established because of the law of Moses. 
and so I, I think that that kind of follows through in the context oftentimes that the law of Christ is, in fact, a spiritual law. The law of Moses is, in fact, a carnal law. That the and, and not just Moses, but you might even say the laws before Moses, too. They're all carnal. They require carnal sacrifices, uh, carnal temples, carnal priesthoods, carnal worldly physical meaning. Whereas in Christ, we have spiritual sacrifices, spiritual priesthoods, uh, spiritual temple. We can get spiritual Jerusalem. We can kind of play through all these things. And in fact, where we're headed is the idea of the spiritual Israel versus the carnal Israel. You know, that's that's kind of a direction we're going to. So when I look at this passage, first and foremost, what I see is the idea of walking according to the spirit speaks more to the idea of the spiritual law of Christ versus the carnal laws of Moses or of the flesh that simply lead to death. And I think that I don't want to step into the question in the chat, but I think that that really kind of sums up a lot of the conversation here. So it's a little different than maybe some see it. I certainly don't think there's anything wrong with it the way we present uh, these ideas. But I oftentimes consider that this might be more of an applicable statement to Moses's law as being a law of sin and death. Um, quite literally, if you broke the law of Moses, you were put to death. But more so that the idea was there was no deliverance from sin in the law of Moses. There was only a postponing or a covering up, but not a way that sin could be removed, which is distinct from the law of Christ. I think that's a good, good point. And I sh we should have made this point at the very start of the study. The, and the majority of the use is when he talks about the law <clears throat> in the negative sense, as you pointed out, he's been con contrasting the law of Moses with the law of Christ, the law of the Spirit. So, Yeah. 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 Okay. Brian saw something funny, and I had your your thing up, and everybody saw you laugh. So I'll have you like a teacher. Now tell the class what you found so Tom was making snarky comments to me behind the scenes. <laughs> it's really Tom's fault. <laughs> That's all right. We, you know, in in the early days of Truth Factor, Brian, I won't mention any names. Both Paul and Tom would probably remember him. We had we had a guest on for a while with us, and he would somehow or another manage to get in big old discussions on the side with people who are watching the study. So I, I would turn to him and say, well, "What are your thoughts on this?" And he'd be like, "Um, what verse are we in? What what are we talking about? I'm sorry, I've been real distracted over here." <laughs> I think, "Okay." Yeah, that's that's me. I, I can be correct. Yeah, well, it's Tom's fault, though. It's, it's Tom's fault. Okay. Did you say something? Did you say something, John? I'm sorry. I was. You're, you're gone. All right. Well, Tom, since you spoke up so readily, and then I'll ask you this, and I'll throw it to Mike. Get his thoughts too. In verse four, there we see the statement um, <clears throat> that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled to us who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the spirit. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering what Paul means by that statement, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. I think it's something we should kind of talk about. Right. Well, you know what? Uh, we sometimes emphasize the, the quote-unquote flaws associated with the law of Moses. Uh, yeah, it, it was... It was I, I don't like the word flawed. I like more of the idea of it was incomplete. It was exactly yeah, what God intended for it to be all along and so on. And the fault but he found was, was with righteousness. Them. Exactly. There yeah. was righteousness associated with that law. If you did what God told you to do under that law, uh, you were going to be taken care of. Uh, that's the bottom line. I, I think the righteous requirement of the law is, is pointing out the fact of what the law could accomplish in you, how it, it could save you as a Jew, 
understanding that Christ was going to come. So that's what I tie that to. All right, Mike, what do you think about the righteous requirement of the law? Throughout the old law, God said, keep my commandments. And yet God realized the impossibility of being perfect, that is complete, in that old law. Uh, Paul deals with that in the earlier chapters of Romans, that there were parts of the law that you they simply could not be kept to their perfection. The completing factor is Christ. So the old law was righteous. It, it wasn't wicked in any way. It was God's law. But to bring it into the completion of it took the blood of Christ. And when Paul says here at verse 4, uh, uh, let, me, let me go back to the beginning of it. Well, I'll just use this, this phrase. He condemned sin in the flesh. See, he, mankind is condemned under sin that the righteous requirement of the law might be filled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We have to come away from the carnal side of things now that, uh, that Tom mentioned, that we're under the patriarchal law, under the Mosaic law, and fulfill this law in our righteous obedience. I think of Christ with John the Baptist. When Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, John to be baptized of you, realizing the sinlessness of Jesus. But yet Jesus' reply to John the baptizer was this, thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. It was God's law that people be baptized to John for the remission of their sins, although that still required the blood of sacrifice and animals because the blood of Christ hadn't been shed yet. That's another long discussion in itself. But yet Jesus kept that righteousness. Jesus fulfilled that righteousness. Well, the completeness of that is when we obey the gospel. And therefore, it makes us away from that law. We don't walk after the flesh anymore. We walk according to the spirit. We walk according to what Christ's law is now within the New Testament. Okay. <clears throat> I think this, that's a good explanation of that, Mike. Um because especially when you talk about there in verse 3, what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did right. by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Right. Um, he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That sin had to be condemned by Christ, and then he had to die upon yes. the cross of Calvary to make that salvation possible. But then he goes on in the text there, might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The, the righteous requirement of the law is not fulfilled if we walk according to the flesh. That's correct. It's fulfilled it, if we walk according to the spirit. Walking according to the spirit. Yeah. You see, when, when we get to, if I can go ahead now and jump to verse six, though it's yes. verse included in this, I don't, I, I don't want to make people think that I'm right on every <clears> issue. I, I hesitate to say it's my conviction. But when you look at verse 6, I see a, a, a focal point for every dispensation of God's speaking. Under the patriarchal law, if you were carnally minded rather than inclined to think about what God desired, then you died. If under the Mosaic dispensation, you thought more about the fleshly temporal things than you did about God, then you died losing your soul. And under the new law, if we tend to think carnally, more than spiritually and act according to the carnal desires rather than God's desires, we die. 
So I see Romans 8, verse 6 is the focal point of every dispensation of God. To be carnally minded is death. And that goes back to Romans 6, 23. Uh, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through that. Uh, is gift of God is eternal life. To be spiritually minded is life, peace. Well, who doesn't want peace? And the life that he's talking about is not a life of the flesh, but a life of the spirit. I go to Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. If you then be risen with Christ, that's baptism, seek those things which are above, where Christ is at the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth, for ye are dead. But your life is hid with Christ in God. And when Christ shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. Galatians 2 and, and verse 20 says the same thing. Paul said, I'm crucified with him. Well, nobody ever lived through a crucifixion. Crucified with him. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. That I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loves me and gave himself for me. Quite frankly, that explains the indwelling of the Spirit, the indwelling of Christ, the indwelling. We surrender our physical lives to be guided by what God, Christ, the Spirit, <laughs> do, all recorded within the confines of the New Testament. Peter said it simply, according as his divine power, he hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. All right. Thank you, Mike. I think that's a good explanation. V very good explanation. Um, <clears throat> because many times when people kind of read this text, it sounds a lot like it's, but Paul's painting the picture of one or the other. To be carnally minded is to mm -hmm. be without spiritual mindedness in the context. Mm -hmm. And right. to be spiritually minded is not to be carnally minded. You know, it's where your focus is. You can live your life in a carnal body but with a spiritual mindset and have control over the physical body. And that's body. the point Paul's yeah. making. Yeah, that's exactly the point right. Paul's making. Okay. Any other thoughts or comments on this? Um, I think this very well covers the discussion of uh, living according to the flesh versus living according to the spirit. So we'll, we'll move on to the next area that we kind of tap danced around a little bit. But before we do, any thoughts or comments? Brian, did you have anything? No. No, I, I was kind of making an offhand comment. I just find it fascinating when it talks about verse 3, sending the Son in the light that is a sinful flesh. Yeah. Um, I, but but let's be honest, how do we talk about that in, in less than an hour, half an hour? This is such a remarkable statement about Jesus. It's not saying Jesus is sinful, but it, it is giving us a sense that the desires of the flesh were with him too. Uh, it's a remarkable idea to consider, but not one we want to go too far. Maybe the only other comment I was thinking about is that I, I was looking at the, you know, we, we oftentimes point to the NIV as having a particular flaw in, in this chapter and the chapter before when it translates flesh or sinful flesh as sinful nature. I didn't realize this. Uh, I was just looking at this just now. I guess the NIV has updated and has reverted, at least in some of these places, back to the term the flesh as opposed to sinful nature. We understand that the Bible is not telling us we have a sinful nature Although, if we want to be complex about this, we could say the Bible is saying that flesh has a sinful nature, or at least it desires the flesh, which leads to sin. Uh, but again, that's a very complex idea 
that I'm sure for the sake of time we we probably are better not to get too far into. Well, I, I think that's a I think that's a very valid point. Um, a lot of theological positions have been taken on the concept that Adam and Eve, Adam, corrupted the very nature of of flesh, and therefore we cannot. Matter of fact, we are born guilty the, the, based on that the, theology uh, because of um, action sins. But um, I, I think everything sin-related is found within this fleshly body that we live in. Selfishness, lusting, covetousness, all those things, you know, all those things there exist within our fleshly body. And Jesus dwelt within a fleshly body, the body of sin, you might say, but yet he maintained ultimate control over, over all that. You know, I might, I might even draw the idea to say that when Paul talks about flesh here, it's a parallel to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 when he talks about the natural man versus mm -hmm. the spiritual man. Or, or even uh, ideas like the, the, the way that, that sin draws or affects us in 1 John chapter 2, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, that, that, that that's all that's of the world. So worldly, natural, fleshly, carnal. Uh, James would, would throw in the word uh, in James chapter 3, demonic, you know, that these are the, these are the characteristics of, of the physical, natural world that, uh, uh, that are there. Now, what's real interesting about what you're saying, John, is that you're right? A lot of people would suggest that that Adam somehow corrupted human flesh, and yet uh, the Bible is explicit to reveal to us that when Eve was tempted, it was the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, mm -hmm. that drew her to the fruit on the tree, and that those things were present even before sin. So that the flesh's characteristic or problematic characteristic was present even before sin was committed. So so Adam could not have corrupted the human body or the human uh, race because the the concepts of corruption were there in that moment, even before sin had occurred. That's a that's a good point. It, it, it is it is how we let those desires control our lives, into the actions. So, in other words, you're right; those things were already present in the body before Eve ever took a bite of that. Yeah. All right. Let's see. So uh, let's see verses nine through eleven, real quick. Um, we, we kind of we Paul really took us headlong into this earlier, and um, Mike has touched on it as well. I think a lot of good comments. Even Tom has mentioned it, if memory serves correctly. But let me bring up verses nine through eleven again, real quick, and let's just have a real brief discussion over what we're talking about here with the you know who is dwelling in whom. Basically, and I think I tried to get the English right on that. I'm not real sure who is dwelling in whom. So he says here in verse nine, here we go. So, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Okay. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. So mark that one first. You are in the spirit. If the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. So here we have the idea of having the spirit of Christ. All right, and if we don't, then Christ is not his. And if Christ is in you, then the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, so now we go back to the spirit dwelling in you, then he, that is God who raised Christ from the dead, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit 
who dwells in you. So, Brian, do you think that based on what Paul is saying, the spirit of the Lord dwells within us? <laughs> so I, I and I take a, a more traditional view of how, exactly how this passage can be worked out. Of course, the answer is, you know, it, the spirit of God dwells in you. Uh, Second yeah. Corinthians chapter. Uh, uh, actually, I just forgot which passage I was going through. Uh, but the point is, yes, uh, it, it does say it rather clearly. However, I oftentimes say what what exactly that means might speak more to the idea of being spiritual versus being uh, carnally minded too. that certainly that's going back to verse two. That's the context of this statement. Yeah. The idea of a man who walks by the spirit and or by faith is the other way we're told to walk versus by the flesh or by sight. And I think that, uh, um, I, you know, I think I mentioned this before off the record to say that I think sometimes it's more important we understand what this passage is not saying than what it yeah. is saying. It's not saying I should expect the spirit of God to dwell in me and then necessarily he by that dwelling changes who I am because a lot of that change, well, all that change is also dependent upon my mind being spiritual. So I think that there is, therein lies the danger of the of misunderstanding is if somebody says, well, I expect the spirit of God to manipulate or change or take control of me in a way that I have no choice but not to sin. And that's certainly not the truth. Right. And what the, here's what's so, what's so challenging about it is we can say in a very accurate statement let the Spirit of the Lord guide your life, okay? And we understand from the context of Scriptures what that means. But in the denominational world, it means something completely different. You know, um, I, I say in some areas of the denominational world. Not, not all denominations hold that position, you know. But you know, I would say this, uh, John. I would say in at least some variation, yeah. almost all denominations hold that. Yeah. Some denominations would say that the spirit of God is like, for example, Catholicism, that it's within the church or within the hierarchy of the church. The term they use is magisterium. And they would say that the magisterium of the church is, is controlled by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he dwells in that process and guides them above and beyond what the scriptures say. Protestants tend to lean more towards the idea of a personal indwelling which guides them personally. And again, here's the important idea, apart from the scriptures or yeah. in addition to the scriptures or even to the scriptures. And what, what we would want to be clear about is that the Bible wants us to grasp the idea that the totality of the scriptures is, is the manifestation or the, or the means by which God controls our life. Yeah. John, if I may add just one remark to, to Brian's great comments with that. Paul said we walk by faith and not by sight. He also said that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So that with God speaking it, Christ doing it, the spirit guiding its inspiration to be written, it is righteous to say of us, Colossians 3 and verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. There's our guidance. There's our rule. There's our life. And apart from that, we've returned to the fleshly desires and therefore sin. I think that's a good point. Good point, Mike. I thought you were going to drop the, the secret word to explain all this that we talked about earlier, and you were going to steal my thunder on it. Oh, no, 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 no. That's that's completely John Duvall's. <laughs> I have but come I to agree. the... Yeah. <laughs> 
I, I to me the simplest way, and you know, after studying this, and and I'm, many people have studied it a lot more. I understand this, but the fact that God dwells in us, Christ dwells in us, and the Holy Spirit dwells in us, and we dwell in God, we dwell in Christ, we dwell in the Holy Spirit. The simplest way to explain it is the term fellowship. Absolutely, it is the simplest way. It, it avoids the how. You know, there's a lot of and and I love what Brian said. We know what it's not saying. We yes. can definitely rule those things out. But, right. you know, instead of arguing and quibbling over the how, let's just take it for what it says, state it as truth as Paul does, and acknowledge that fellowship seems to be the best description of, of how the three work like that. Well, does not First John chapter 1 say that exact same thing? Well, where do you think I got it from? First <laughs> <laughs> John 1. Uh, the, I told the, you the whole of John's the chapter. Philosophy. Now, I didn't say John Duval or John the Apostle, did I? I did. That's right. Okay. All right. Um, <laughs> any thoughts or comments before we look at the uh, chat room question? All right. So, Brian, I think we had an answer to the question, considering verses 5 through 8, how would you explain verse 8 when it says, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God? We do have an answer. Thanks, uh, Gregor Hinckley, who gave us the following answer, and you too. Uh, what is the definition of in the flesh? Verse 5 shows the idea of where you think or look to is where we are at. So focus on satiating the bodies of the flesh. Please God in the spirit. So uh, Gregor gave us a really good answer there. Uh, he then simplified it to go on further to say, remember, wherever you are, there you are. <laughs> So uh kind of plays with us there a little bit too. So that's deep. But good. <laughs> Thanks, Gregor. I appreciate that. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to our next section. And we've got about fifteen minutes remaining in the time period of our study. And for the next section here, what I'd like to do is read verses twelve through seventeen. And we're going to take another stab at having Mike to read. He so conveniently bailed on us cause of technical difficulties earlier. So I'm going to throw it over to him and have him to read verses 12 through 17. Be glad to do that. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you, have, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit, God, they are the sons of God. For you did, uh, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed you suffer with Him, that we might also be glorified together. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate you reading that for us there. The chat room question for this particular section is as follows. What does it mean to be joint heirs with Christ? What does it mean to be joint heirs with Christ? All right, gentlemen, back to our discussion now as we go through this. And listen, for those of you at home, if you have any questions or comments about what we say, Maybe you see something a little bit differently. Don't hesitate to, to jump in, throw it into the chat room. We are most certainly monitoring that area. 
So here we have in verses 12 through 15, um, there's a couple of things in the in this I want to kind of talk about or see what we can talk about within the text here. Uh, Mike, he begins as it's divided up for us here. He says, therefore, brethren, we are debtors. Now, it seems like when you read through this, Paul fails to complete that thought. <laughs> uh he, go, he says, we are debtors, and then he takes a little detour on what we are not debtors to. How would you answer? Oh, and what does Paul say here that would help us to understand the, the rest of that statement? We are debtors to whom? Well, we're debtors to God. He, he through Christ, well, actually, it was Christ himself, paid a debt that we can't pay. It, under under previous dispensations, patriarchal and mosaical dispensations, both Jew and Gentile offered sacrifice in attempt to remit their sins. But we might reason from that, is your soul worth $18? Christ paid that debt for sin. There's parables in the New Testament of how slaves were indebted and uh, one, sla one slave that was kind of a foreman said to a, a, a subservient slave of his, you pay me all. And he said, I don't have it to pay. So he threw him in prison, suggesting that he stayed in family till they had paid the debt. Well, when you think about it, how are you going to pay a debt when you're in prison? We were captive under no sacrifice for sin before Christ. With Christ, he has set captive free. We owe him lives. We owe him our all. So when he says we're debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, the opposite of that becomes our, our debt. We're debtors to the spirit, to live according to the spirit. That is, live according to what Christ has told us to do in order to please God. We, we're, Peter said it this way. We are bought with a price. We're redeemed by the blood of Christ. Paul said we're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Peter said we are redeemed, not with corruptible things as silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Christ. How do you return that gift except by service and a lifetime of it? That's a very good point, Mike. I appreciate that. And I kind of did state that wrong. It's not that Paul didn't finish his statement. It's more like he's stating a fact. We are debtors, period. Yes. But the rest of his statement is explaining what we are not debtors to. Yeah. That's correct. And 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 let me point out very quickly, John, that in most translations, King James, New King James, and others, mm -hmm. after the first, therefore, brethren, we are debtors, there's a dash. And it's... Paul is implying, you know what you owe, and it's not to the flesh. Yeah. That's a good point. The ESV, I just want to check real quick, um, says, so then, brothers, we are debtors, comma, not to the flesh, comma, to live according to the flesh, and he continues with mm -hmm. the thought there. Yeah. All right. Um, that's, I mean, that's a pretty simple section there, you know, yeah. what we're looking at. Um but let me, uh, let me, Paul, when, when you kind of look at this section here, and I'll kind of bring you up here real quick. So right. Mike has done a good job explaining, you know, what we are not debtors to and, and what our relationship is with God. But there in verse um, 14, 
He doesn't call us debtors, but he calls us something else. And this is not a contradiction, obviously. It's another way of looking at who we are. Well, we're sons of God. You know, I think about, you know, in this kind of the the prodigal son who wanted to come back and be just uh, a servant of his father. And while we serve our father, there's no doubt about that, serve our heavenly father, uh, that he regards us as sons. He has taken us into his family, made us his own. Uh, This chapter speaks of the spirit uh, of adoption. Uh, We know that Jesus was the only begotten of the Father, but that God has adopted us when we obey the gospel into his family. And so I think that's maybe uh, at least least a part of that uh, as we look look at this. Um, When we're led by the Spirit of God, we are the sons of God. We we take on characteristics that are like our Father. Uh, And that's not uh, in in some kind of an arrogant way, but just some of the... uh, some of those living holy lives and, and uh, hating sin and, and some of those things take on some of the characteristics of our father. And so we're, we're his son. You know, the Bible also speaks about it. If, if you don't watch out, you can become a son of the devil as well. Yeah. Uh, so we need to know whose father we have. John and Paul, if I could jump back in there just for a minute, let me ask a question. Is it not the case that many of us have borrowed from our parents and yet what we borrowed from them, they gifted to us. We're not expected to literally pay it back, but because of their love and their generosity, and I've done this with my boys quite often, because of our love and our generosity, we say, oh, don't worry about that. Just stay faithful, you know, just just still be my son. That's the kind of debt Paul's talking about. We can't repay God for what he did for us, but because we are his children by this obedience, we we owe that debt. But he says, all I'm asking is your faithful service. That'll take care of it. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Very good, very good, good illustration. Because earlier I was kind of thinking about the statement, making a statement that says there are no spoilt children in heaven. Well, look, look at the look at the rest of that passage, John. We're made joint heirs with Christ. Yeah, Christ inherits. That's our inheritance too. Yeah, that's right. But what 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 I meant was is, if we have a sense of entitlement here on earth because we are Christians, and we lose the fact oh, no. that we are debtors to God, yeah, then yeah. we we lose the mindset that, yeah. But Brian, well, you, and then that would that would open up the subject of today's entitlements. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there, there just are none. There just are none. We either work in the kingdom of Christ and are rewarded by our faithfulness, or we become pathetic, lazy, and we lose it all. That's right. That's exactly right. All right, Brian, you had a thought. I did. One of the things that I think is so neat about where Paul has gone with his conversations, he began by talking about. I mentioned before what seems to me to be this this distinction between a law, a, a fleshly carnal law of sin and death versus a spiritual law that can bring life in Christ. Um, the thing, though, that strikes me is that when he brings up this idea of an adoption by grace, I, I always find it interesting to understand how unique that is. In the Old Testament, God revealed himself by a name, the name Jehovah, and that was a very special thing to the Israelites. In fact, uh, we... Uh, I, uh, I wrote down some notes on this about 6,000 times that name is used in the Old Testament. But you know what's not used very often in the Old Testament is the term father. 
In fact, there's only about nine or ten times that the that God is called a father in the Old Testament. And half of those times are actually prophetic about Jesus or about us. So the idea is it wasn't necessarily something that the Israelites saw as, as God is their father. You might remember, I think somebody mentioned whenever Satan was uh, spoken of as their father, that when they said, who is our father? They didn't say God. They said, Abraham is our father. Because the concept of God is their father wasn't necessarily a, a concept that they uh, grasped or took hold of. Uh, in fact, whenever Jesus said God was his father, they sought to stone him because they said that that's a kind of blasphemy to suggest that God could be your father. And yet in the New Testament, hundreds of times we're told that God is now our father if we're in Christ. And I just love to see the, the contrast here. In the Old Testament, God offered something special to the Israelites. I'll let you know me personally. But in the New Testament, this new covenant offers something even more substantial. I'll adopt you. And um, I was going to quote uh, the passage about this in Isaiah chapter 56, where God speaks of it. He says, I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name. They'll not be cut off. So he, he speaks to this idea of an adoption that was going to come one day and how they would receive his name in that sense. This, uh, this idea that we would become the children of God by receiving the name of God ourselves. It's a really neat idea. And as I said, it kind of explains why the word Jehovah is not found in the New Testament, because that's not the covenant relationship we're pursuing. We're pursuing a covenant relationship that makes us children of God. Right. I appreciate that. Um, I had not really given thought to that difference, but that is a very well explained, well explained point. Um the the only thing I can think of is um, when Jesus uh, mentioned as being like what you said, he called himself the son of God. They got onto him and he said, well, didn't even David say that we were sons of God? You know, and so he kind of pulls upon a part. We were gods. Yeah. Yeah. And, David yeah. Said we are gods. We are gods. That's right. And um, but anyway, it's it's but, but looking at it from the standpoint for us, he is our father for the children of Israel. He was their God but not their father as we view it today. Right. You might look at a statement like John 1 where he says, as many as receive Jesus are given the right to become children of God. So again, this idea of being a child of God is, is a new idea in the New Testament. Yeah. Uh, this is, and again, it was the prophets talked about this. And that's where I said that a lot of the passages we're talking about God as a father are prophetic. Paul quotes in 2 Corinthians 6, 18, I'll be a father to you. You'll be sons and daughters to me. That they, right. this was a, a prophetic promise of a, of a closer relationship than that of just a servant and a master, you know, that where the master says, hey, you can call me by my first name. This is one where he says, hey, you can call me father. And that's that's this declaration here. He goes on to say that they can cry out, Abba, Father. So in our sermons on the new covenant that Jeremiah foretold, it wouldn't hurt to put a section in there about the coming of the day when we would call him father. Yeah, you know, and like I said, again, if somebody wonders why is Jehovah not in the New Testament, it's not found anywhere in the New Testament. It's because that's not that's not the covenant that we're a part of anymore. That covenant was was close and loving, but it was the close loving relationship of a master and a servant. And this new covenant is is the close loving relationship of a father and a son. And that's why, again, going to the Hebrew writer, this is a far better covenant. Definitely.
definitely. I appreciate that. That's a great explanation there. All right, we are down to about five minutes remaining, and I think this will probably, verse 17 will be a good stopping point here in just a moment. We're not yet done. We're almost there, though. It is interesting, and, and let's see. Let me pick on Tom here for a moment. Um, Tom, so looking at verses 16 and 17 there, um, you got any thoughts on maybe how the Spirit will bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God? Um. I guess the best way that I could explain that is uh, in in whatever in whatever way he works, <laughs> you know. Well, I mean, yeah. Uh, he he's cord he. Uh, I mean, uh, he coordinates with us. That, that that's not a good word. I mean, we uh, we we work good together. You might say it this way: He does his part, we do our part. We're not butting heads with each other, but we're working together. And as we work together to accomplish being Christians, then uh, uh, we're children of God. And because we're children of God, we're heirs. Yeah. So I, uh, I, I guess that's kind of the best way that I say. I mean, it, it's, it's us working together. Now, you know, back in the first century, there may be a sense in which uh, uh were miracles involved in that, you know, those who were doing the miracles and in whatever way he more directly influenced their work, you know, he's working along with us, at, but together, together we're showing that we are children of God. And by the way, that shows that we have a part in this as well. Yeah. Well, to me, I think what's an interesting question is to whom does he bear witness? You know, think about it, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit. So we have two testimonies there that we are yeah. children of God. But to whom does the Spirit and our spirit bear this witness? Could it be the world us? around us? Yeah, or, or or even to me myself. To ourselves, yeah. yeah. Because when you st when you consider the Spirit was sent to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come, John chapter sixteen. Okay, He's done that. And it's through the word of God. And we have the promises that we have been made alive through the spirit of Christ, through the spirit of God. And the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Um, that's why we take for confident what the scripture says in the promise. It's not about a feeling. It's about confidence and faith in God. And if we do what God has told us to do, we trust that he is just and faithful and will forgive us of our transgressions. And the spirit bears witness with that. Right. You, you know, you know, John, one thing that we have to realize, you know, we've had a little bit of a discussion today, you know, kind of acknowledging that in some way the spirit dwells in us. And yes. and we've pointed out how we don't fully understand that. And, you know, sometimes the discussion is made about the word of God being related to the spirit. I want us to understand this. The only thing we're going to know about God is what he tells us in his word. And we know that the Holy Spirit has revealed that. So he's not going to come down and there's not going to be some kind of a miraculous manifestation to us. Right. You know, revealing something else from God. The spirit does his part, whatever that is. And when we are doing our part and by and the way that we know that the way we know we're doing our part is by listening to what we have been taught in his word. 
we ought to have the confidence that we are the children of God. And I think that's the direction that Paul is going with this. Mm -hmm. We can know that we are the children of God because, number one, God's done what he said he would do. He's done what we can't do. We call that grace. And we've done what he tells us to do. And when we do what he tells us to do, we ought to have the confidence that we are children of God. That's right. That's right. And if we're children, then heirs, yep. heirs of God, and join heirs with Christ, which will then lead us into the chat room question here in just a second. Good point, Todd. Appreciate that. All right. Any other thoughts or comments on this section uh, from the panel? Anybody? All right. Well, let's go ahead and pop the chat room question back up for this section. And there is a lot more that we could discuss. Um, and there, and as Tom said, there's a lot that we don't know, but we have to take the Bible for what it says and make sure we understand what it doesn't say, if that makes sense, and then trust in God. So the chat room question was, what does it mean to be joint heirs with Christ? And Brian, let's see, did we have a reply, an answer to that? We did. Uh, now, Gregor, Gregor tricked us. He switched over from YouTube to Facebook, so I, I couldn't find it, but I know we responded, so... Gregor's answer, he says, this clarifies our status with God. We are fully adopted or restored to God, our Father. Under the law of Moses, we did not have this. Man was a servant to God. In the new law, if we are in fellowship with the family, we are God's child, just like Jesus the Christ. That's a great answer. It, it really is. Um, the fact that we are joint heirs means that Christ is our brother. In that he was born of, in the flesh as we are in the flesh. And he is a son of God, and we are sons of God. Yeah. All righty. I appreciate that that answer, Gregor. Very, very well stated there. All right. This is our stopping point, verse 17. We'll have to continue it next uh, Wednesday, Lord willing. Any final thoughts or comments? Let's kind of go swing through this quickly. Tom, we'll start with you. No, no extra comments. Appreciate the study as we deal with the Spirit of God. Just real quick, I will not be here for the uh, next two weeks, more than likely. I'm going to be in Tennessee preaching a meeting uh, starting a week from Sunday. So, And I was going to give you the question about how the Holy Spirit helps us in our prayers. Okay, you do that. <laughs> All right, appreciate your thoughts. Brian, any, any final thoughts or comments? I don't. It was some great studies today, guys. We need to have Shelton to work on that about the Holy Spirit helps us in our prayers and we'll throw him under the bus next week. <laughs> Mike, any final thoughts? Absolutely. I really appreciate such deep study, fellas. I really do. Thank you for being with us. All right. Thanks, Mike. And Paul. Well, with all of the uh, viruses, the influenza A and B and Corona COVID-19, I just want you to know that this broadcast has been sanitized for your protection. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> you can listen to us confidently knowing that you will not catch any diseases from us. Okay. On <laughs> We'd like to thank everyone for joining us this week for our study through the, through the book of Romans. And like I said, we will continue the latter half of chapter 8 next Wednesday. And we hope that you can join us for our study. If you have any thoughts or comments, send them to questions at truthfactorlive.com. Um, we will continue our study, Lord willing, though, next Wednesday. 
at 11 o'clock a.m. Central Time. That's noon in the Eastern Time Zone. 9 a.m. on the Pacific Coast. 10 a.m. Mountain Time. And that's right here at live.truthfactor.com. Have a wonderful week.